Welcome to Drink Beer, Think Beer, the podcast that gets the bottom of every pint. I'm John Hall. Spring is almost here, which means that plants will start to come back to life in the colder parts of the country, and foraging has always been a part of beer. On this episode, we're going to hear from a Texas brewer who's making the most of what's growing around his brewery, and we'll get into it all in a moment. But first, please go visit allaboutbeer.com for original articles, reviews, news, insights, and podcasts. You can listen to shows like Beer Travelers, Brewer to Brewer, and the All About Beer podcast by simply searching All About Beer wherever you listen to shows. This show and all of the work we do is supported by you. You can visit patreon.com slash allaboutbeer to help keep the content fresh. And a reminder that a few bucks goes a long way to fund writers, photographers, creators, and editors. And if you'd like to learn more about advertising on this show, you can email info at allaboutbeer.com. If you're a smoked beer fan, and of course you are, check out This Week in Rauk Beer. Search for the Facebook group or follow on Instagram and Twitter at TWRaukBeer. And if you're a brewing professional, on May 9th in Nashville during the Craft Brewers Conference, join us at Barik Brewing and Blending for a very special Camp Rauk Beer event. The smoky goodness starts at 4 p.m. Trevor Nierberg is the founder of Beerberg Brewing in the Texas Hill Country. After his brother started homebrewing, Trevor got roped in, and together they decided to quit their jobs and become brewers. Both took jobs stacking cases and scrubbing floors at Real Ale Brewing, one of the 50 largest breweries in the U.S. at the time and the second largest in Texas. They both quickly moved up, and after a year of working various jobs in the packaging hall, Trevor made a significant jump to become the head brewer of Uncle Billy's, a local brew pub, and his brother got into management at Real Ale. At the time, Trevor grew Uncle Billy's from a 600 barrel per year tap room in producing it into producing 3,000 barrels per year and distributing all over Texas. He also helped to opus the latest iteration of the Celis Brewery. Eventually, he became fascinated with brewing and local ingredients and wanted to create a brewery devoted to this and the idea for Beerberg slowly started forming. The plans came together, and he opened Beerberg in late January of 2020. So after a rough few years, he's now back to devoting time into wild crafting beers with native ingredients and local yeast strains. And that's what we're going to talk about on this episode. He spoke to me from the brewery. Here's our conversation. Tell me about the land. Tell me about hill country uh, outside of Austin and what it's like when you look out your window. Oh man, it's so cool. Um, my job dropped when I first saw the property. We didn't intend to open up as big a place as we did. Um, I was looking for something more like three acres or, or you know, something where I could get like a hundred people in there. It'd be like this small little country place where I had a lot of freedom to like experiment and explore and uh, just play around. Um, but we found this property that was fifteen acres. And it's not like it's not like a hill per se, but there's like a gentle slope that this property has. And we're at the very top of that gentle slope. And we overlook a 70,000 acre nature preserve called the Shield Ranch. And our as the area around Austin develops, we're in this pocket that's surrounded by this nature preserve. So we have this beautiful view and we've put just like the building was was kind of designed to 
it was designed for the space. So once when I say we didn't mean to be as big as we are, once we found the property, it was like we have this like beautiful forested beer garden and the building can go right here and we can do all these windows and we overlook this just sweeping view of the hill country. Um, and what's kind of funny is that I didn't, I didn't even think about it when we got the property, but the shield ranch is where I did my Eagle Scout project. And so there are three miles of trails on this nature preserve that I can just pop over and I've, I've gotten to know the owners and managers of the seal branch now. And, um, part of my foraging is that we go over and hike those trails that I did when I was, you know, 16 years old and we forage along there. And the 15 acres that I have, uh, has some ingredients that we forage for. Um, but it's, it's mostly cedars and oaks, um, which do provide some things. So, yeah, it's a it's a fun little spot. What is growing in and around that you find interesting for foraging? Um, I have a list. <laughs> but, <laughs> you came prepared. I dig it. Yeah. Well, it's, so part of this is funny. Like I I mentioned uh, to you privately earlier that I don't. I, my memory is not great, so I take a lot of notes. So. Um, I'm I'm almost like inadvertently writing a book, kind of kind of like um, the Homebrewers Almanac from scratch. Um, okay, a huge inspiration reading that book. Um, but I'm trying to like list all the ingredients, like where I find them, how how to harvest them, how we use them in brewing, all this stuff. Um, but I'd say on the on the on Beerberg's property itself, um, agarita, um, grape, wild grapes uh acorns we harvest acorns uh i've actually brought yarrow whorehound and mugwort from um my family's property where i do most of my foraging um and i've kind of transplanted them there and i can get enough to do a real small batch and those little things are growing i tend not i should clarify that with foraging like i don't grow things i'm not a gardener i tend to kill plants Okay. But I'm very good at finding them in the wild. <laughs> so, um, let's, oh my gosh, one of the most prolific things we have at Beerberg is persimmon. And it's, it's ah. not the big orange persimmon that most people are familiar with. It's a small black persimmon that kind of has like a cherry molasses flavor. And our beer garden's cool because like it's half persimmon trees and half oaks. And so, um, in the summertime, the fruit appears and then kind of towards the end of the summer, um, it starts to turn black and we get, oh my gosh, I, I, I've probably got like a hundred pounds of persimmon fruit. Uh, and it's all like a lot of it's still sitting in the freezer, but, um, yeah, the, the beer, sorry, I'm all over the place. That's um, good. No, no, no. This is yeah. Okay. So a bit off topic from the original question, but one of the main things I like about Beerberg, what I really wanted people to experience was to be able to be surrounded by and a part of the ingredients that we're brewing with. And so for instance, like I try and make sure that I freeze and hold on to a lot of uh, persimmon, either the fruit itself or like a syrup that we make and hold on to it for next year so that as the persimmons are ripening, we can brew a batch of beer with the persimmons and then people can be in the beer garden 
you know, and whether it's the agarita berries or the persimmons or the whorehound or the acorns and the oaks, um, you know, they can be sitting next to this plant. So it kept the beer garden pretty wild and you're drinking the beer that's based all around this ingredient and you can both connect to it physically and emotionally and like you can imbibe it and really get like a full experience of getting to know that plant. So what, that's, what is agarita? I I'm, I'm unfamiliar with that. Yeah. It's a, it's a funny plant. It's um it's one of the most potent medicinal plants we have in Texas and most people it's really, it's like a spiky bush that just grows everywhere and it's hard to kill. And if people don't like the plant, which is often the case, they just end up ripping it all out of the ground. Um, but because it's really thorny and, and it's, it can be really obnoxious, but um, it's one of the, I think one of the things about foraging that I've gotten to know is like so many plants that I've hated my whole life. I now have this amazing relationship with because I actually sat down with literally there's this thing called plant sitting where you just sit with a plant and however you feel inclined to do it you just kind of get to know the plant um, I do a lot of like breath work with when I'm doing that or I like try and meditate and kind of just like feel out the plant and that's that's not an uncommon thing that's something that yeah. I really need to get to know them um, so agarita is one of those that if you were to just stumble across it you'd be like Ew, spiky bush. Um, I don't like you. But then, <laughs> like right now, it's full of these beautiful yellow flowers. And as I'm walking the dogs in the morning, there's a trail next to my house. And you just walk through these like clouds of honeysuckle sweet air. And it's one of the most rewarding things that I have in the morning is like just walking through the these agarita bushes and getting this wonderful aroma and these beautiful yellow flowers when nothing else is flowering right now. Um, so I'm trying to figure out a way to capture the, the flower flavor, but I'm not sure how to do that yet. But then in May, they get these really nice little red berries that taste kind of like cranberries. And um, it's, this is such a good example of like a foraging plant because you look at this plant and you go spiky leaves red berries <laughs> that's poisonous it's gonna kill me right. yeah <laughs> you know? but no. Some, somewhere deep in your genealogy it's like, yeah yeah we evolved by not eating this please yeah. don't yeah like, don't mess up our, our family bloodline yeah yeah but then you know i guess that extends to a lot of ingredients in texas like prickly pear cactus and mesquite trees like these things are all pretty rough have thorns and like there's ants that cover the mesquite trees and and then there's rattlesnakes that i'm always encountering when i'm harvesting prickly pears and it's like it's a dangerous game out here in texas um, but anyway the agarita plant uh the berries taste like cranberries and people make jellies and jams out of them harvesting them can be difficult but once you get the hang of it it's like really fun um, and then the medicinal aspect comes from the roots and the stems, they have berberine in them. And so it's like, um, I, I know a decent amount of medicinal stuff, but my focus is on brewing. Uh, but the berberine is like a good antiviral and it helps if you have like, um, like if you have food, he's my dog. No, no all good. <laughs> um, if you have like a food poisoning or something, you can take that and it'll through your food poisoning. 
In your brewing career, uh, you've focused on you know, brewing, I think, more common styles um, or better, you know, better known styles of IPAs and Pilsners. And, and, and I know you're, you're, you're brewing those on your larger system um, at your brewery, but what drew you to the idea of foraging for the purposes of making beers? Yeah, I, um, it is interesting because when I went to work, <laughs> okay, I'm too long-winded. So um, no, you're good. It starts back at Real Ale Brewing. Uh, my first year in brewing was at Real Ale, and I there were there were kind of two people that I looked up to at Real Ale. Uh, Eric Ogershock, who was like this heavy metal big guy, long hair all the way like down his back, and just like brewed whatever the hell he wanted. He was the he was the head brewer. Uh, or no, he was the brewmaster. And then Tim Schwartz is one of the owners and he's, he's got a long history of brewing in Austin. And Tim is like the BJCP judge. Like everything has to be exactly to style. You brew it this way. And if it's not that way, it's wrong. Right. <laughs> and so I remember this when I was first, I got the job at Real Ale and my brother and I were just brewing at home, constantly reading every brew book we could get our hands on. We would like make brewing we would make presentations of the brewing books and then present them to each other and it was like really nerdy and fun but um i remember going like i really want to get to know vienna malt and so i was like i'm gonna brew 100 percent vienna malt and eric was like fuck yeah do it like there's no rules just you like have fun and then tim was like pissed he was like nobody brews 100 percent vienna malt that beer is gonna suck what the hell are you thinking? Like he got mad <laughs> and, and it was, so I had these very like conflicting mentors um, at Real Ale, but I've never been the, even though, so, okay. So once I left Real Ale, I went to work at uncle Billy's and there, they were the first brew pub in Texas to go through a distributor once the laws changed um, in like 2011 or 2012. Okay. And um, and so their goal was to grow the distribution network. And so I ended up brewing, uh, you know, 20 barrel batches of three beers over and over and over again. But my philosophy, even from the start, was I got into brewing because it was just fun and exciting and like fuck the system kind of a thing, you know? So that mentality has kind of stayed with me. And I, I have a tremendous amount of respect for brewers that hone in on styles that they really want to nail down and be the best at. So like um, Amos and Brian Peters, uh, Amos Lowe and Brian Peters over ABGB have won like every single year for their loggers. And that's what they brew. And they don't deviate a whole lot from that. And they won't tell you shit about how they brew them because that's theirs. And they've worked really hard on it. And I respect that. Mm -hmm. I really enjoy getting to know new styles, new ingredients, new ways of brewing. I enjoy the innovation of it. I like to play and have fun. So even as I was brewing these same beers over and over again, at Uncle Billy's, I was always like trying to find new things to like sneak in and like just have taproom exclusive stuff that like I just try new stuff. Um, and so it started with things like using cacao nibs or making a beer with honey. And then I would go to a farmer's market and I'd meet somebody and it was like, oh, this is cool. Like I should do a collaboration with this person. 
Um, and then I kind of, it just like, I can't say that there was ever a moment that it like happened, but I like, there was just this path that I followed that led me to more and more local. And um, I think at one point I read the book, the book Brewing Local, because I, I go, I go hiking a lot and I'm out in nature a lot. And I've always just like looked around and seen plants like agarita. And I've been like, that could kill me or it could make a very delicious beer, but I don't know how to do that. <laughs> Only one so way I, to find out. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I was like, I was always, I you know, you hear about all these spices and herbs and, and things that people use in culinary stuff. But I was like, there's, there's things here. I know, I know there's stuff here that we can use, but I can't find any resources on what to do with it. And so just like as, as I learned how to brew well in my classic styles at Uncle Billy's, you know, I never stopped trying to make sure that I had my basics down because I felt like if I'm going to brew with the weird stuff. I better have like a really good understanding of what I'm putting it in um, and how, and like, I always wanted to craft beers around the ingredients. So even if I don't brew a style, I want to make sure that I'm like, just the fundamentals are there so that I can experiment. I, I don't know. Does that make sense? It does. Okay. Um, okay. I can keep rambling or ask another question. What, it, it, <laughs> what, what was your next thought? Cause I don't want to, I, I can well, take it in a couple of different directions, but yeah. Yeah. Well, just feel free to guide me. Um, so after reading brewing local and I didn't realize it until I went back and read the book, like last year that um there was this one section on beers made by walking which is an organization um from eric steen right yeah eric. it's a great it's a great org yeah so cool and um i'm working with him now but i remember i read this little paragraph that was like there's this guy and he takes people on hikes in colorado and they learn from local experts about all the ingredients around on this hike and then they can either you know go out and forge that or they can find it or they can get a supplier or they can just brew a beer that's like hey i saw this purple flower and now i've made this purple beer to represent the purple flower or something like that um and i just thought that was so cool and i kind of just started to seek more information around that and i picked up some more books like um, I don't know, Wildcraft Brewers, Sacred Herbal Healing Beers and stuff like that. Um, definitely the Homebrew's Almanac, which I mentioned earlier. And it was always like consultant herbalist. And so I didn't really understand how to do that. Um, but I think a good place to start for people that find themselves starting to ask these questions about like, what can I brew locally? Or like, hey, I know that there's this ingredient, but like, what do I do with it? Um, I found some free herb walks. It turns out there's a really thriving herbalist community in Austin. I shouldn't have been surprised, <laughs> but um, I started going on free herb walks and asking way too many questions, way more than anybody else. <laughs> and um, then got to know the head of one of the two main herbalism schools in Austin. And um, that just kind of really started to open my network of both resources and people to ask and um, and just to like start to 
you know, kind of crowdsource some of this stuff. And what's funny is that like a lot of the people in herbalism don't use these ingredients uh, for culinary purposes. It's just medicine. So they're not always like concerned with how they taste. Um, and so there's still which a lot is of, a problematic for beer, but yeah. Yeah. And I, I really, I loved getting to know the plants and the, I think it is important to like, to know the medicine and to know how we interact with them um, and how we're connected to them in ways that we may not have realized. Um, so, which is hard to describe until you do it. Um, but like, yeah, once, um, once I under, you know, at a fundamental level, just like, is this poison or is this good? <laughs> <laughs> once you start to get to know that you can start experimenting and then there is a there are a lot of resources out there that once i figured it out it's like okay there's there's like there's people that are doing this and then yeah. there's some ground rules that like generally use this much or that much which when you're foraging definitely varies by region and source so like that was fun to get to know um the recipes in sacred herbal and healing beers call for absurd amounts of herbs that will ruin any beer <laughs> but it's a historical reference not a brewing guide yeah so, so can yeah. we talk about process for a minute then of absolutely what you've learned so you're you're doing a lot of these on a one and a half barrel system so uh you have your your, your proper nano setup um in your uh in your brew house and i'm i'm wondering what you've learned in the three or so years that you've been doing this, um, or, you know, I, I no longer, but, um, what you've learned over the last couple of years as to ingredients, amounts of, uh, boil times of additions. Um, yeah, it, it's sort of an open-ended cause I don't know what you've learned. So I'm curious. Right. Um, and I will say it's, it has been tough because, I really got into all this right before open. Like when I left uncle Billy's in like 2017 and for three years, I was essentially a construction manager um, and had a hard time brewing. Uh, I was brewing at home. Uh, but at in those three years, I was starting to get to know this stuff. And then I did a year in herbalism school. Um, and then very quickly after I completed herbalism school, uh, we were preparing to open Beerberg. And so there was like a couple months in between. And then the pandemic hit and I became owner and not so much brewer. And it's, it's like, it's tough looking back on all that because I wanted to brew so badly, but so much of my time was just spent trying to figure out how not to, or just how to stay open, how to keep all my employees with jobs, how to make sure everybody got paid, how to like, just make sure the business stayed alive. And so it's, I definitely have been experimenting a lot, but I would say like, even just this year has been the first year that I'm like, I have shed a lot of my responsibilities and I am now moving back into the brewery, but, um, trial and error when using foraging is kind of 
an unfortunate necessary evil because when I was when I would find an ingredient be like okay I know I can brew with this I know what it is I found recipes that use it and then I would brew kind of based on the information that I found and it was always way off like unpalatable yeah and I think you know based on wherever you are your ingredients are going to taste different i think in texas it's just a harsher climate and maybe maybe that's why our herbs are so much more intense um but let's see like i'm going to try and find one like i know juniper has been the bane of my existence i love brewing juniper ours is very medicinal and so I even heard, you know, in an earlier episode of this podcast, like a little bit goes a long way. And it's so yeah. true. Um, so I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to minimize the medicinal aspect of juniper. And what I ended up doing was making a syrup out of the berries, which uh-huh. can like, you know, after brewing a bunch of, you can use the berries and it tastes great. But I was always like, there's, there's still just like this medicinal aspect that's tough. And so I made a syrup with it and that really toned it down. And it kind of gave me a little bit more control over the variability and how intense the flavor is in those berries. So if I was to just take a handful and throw it in, I don't always know what I'm going to get. But right. if I can make a syrup and I can taste that syrup and just kind of like, you know, do the thing where pour a glass of beer and put a little syrup in there and kind of see where it goes and then kind of scale up as you see fit. Um, but using a syrup that has a uniform flavor can be a lot more helpful. And then with the branches, like this whole filter, if I was to try and filter my beer through the juniper branches in Texas, again, I've done it. It's undrinkable. (laughs) But, um, I was reading in historic brewing techniques about how, it's not just that they filter the beer through the juniper boughs. They actually brew with a juniper extract where they, they take their HL, their HLT and historic brewing is just <laughs> in a pot, right? They <laughs> their brewing water. Um, and they throw in some juniper branches and then they brew with that. And I was thinking like, okay, that could knock down. And then, you know, that's just making a tea. Right. And why, why making a tea is different from throwing the branches into the boil kill versus doing some other techniques. Why that tastes different is beyond me. I I can't explain that, but there is some difference. So what I ended up doing was I have this oil extraction kit, which you can, you can like Google essential oil extraction thing. And it's like this cool little glass thing on a, on a, a heating pad or a hot plate and you essentially steam the herbs and then all that steam gets condensed. It's just a little still and it'll pull the, it'll separate the oil from the steam distillate of the plant. And so what I ended up doing was taking that it's called a hydrosol. And if you just go real low and slow and steam the juniper, and then pull the essential oil off and you can use that for like candles and um i don't know like um what about so anyway yeah um, you can use the hydrosol and that hydrosol 
what's nice about using that instead of just throwing juniper branches in your mash or your boil or whatever is that there's it's so clean and there's no lingering like sticky sappy medicinal bitterness um but you know nobody told me that i just had to kind of like brew 20 batches of really shitty juniper beer <laughs> so like i kept having the amount of juniper and then we ended up putting the bowels in the mash <clears throat> and we figured out that yeah putting the bowels in the mash does reduce the medicinal aspect and then you know and then i found out that juniper produces more oil in the summer because it's really hot in texas and it's trying to protect itself from that heat so <laughs> we were like we brewed this batch in the spring and we we're like that's it that's the recipe we nailed it and then um come summer we brewed it again and i was just like what happened like did we write down everything wrong or I what but no it just turns out there's like twice to three times as much oil on the plant so wow anyway no but that i mean it, 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 it's it's got to be frustrating but it's also kind of super fun especially in such a homogenized ingredient marketplace these days where you know you can you know what to accept ex expect from certain hop lots you know what to expect when you're ordering malt you know i i, I imagine it's frustrating but it's also <laughs> i don't know like fun rustic brewing of yeah. It's cool. Yeah. It's like, I don't, I don't know why more people don't do this. It's so, um, I feel so connected to everything I'm doing and I feel like, I don't know, it's, it's, it's hard to describe what this is like, but like being a part of like going out and finding this thing and bringing it back in and like being very intentional about it. Like, I think one of the things that is really important is that you don't just like oh yarrow i can go just grab yarrow and then you just wipe out the yarrow population on the land like it's just like this is mine and like i own it and it serves me like no you you go out and you create like i know each patch of yarrow on this property and like each one has its own little quirks and i know like how much i want to harvest from each spot or if like this year it's going to be another drought year and it's going to be tough to harvest and so i may not be brewing yarrow beers this year i may really leave those patches alone and let them like really grow and survive so that they're there when we do finally get some rain i i can go back and, and harvest some more but um there's yeah, a, I yeah go ahead i want i wanted to bring that up though just on the responsibility to the land and not just picking everything um you know so for anybody who's thinking about um uh getting into this i mean th there are there's responsibilities to to the plant to the land to your neighbors to um you know to the earth of not promoting or participating in deforestation for lack of a better term i don't know what it would be with the with with, with plants but um yeah. and i imagine that that you've had those conversations yeah um and i mean you know i try i really try and make sure that i don't get too uh, i don't know i call i call it woo wooey like when people get like a little too woo wooey um <laughs> <laughs> You know, I want to make sure that everything's approachable and that people are excited about this. And you don't have to be like really weird to get into it, but you gotta be a little weird. Um, but when 
it's not just a conversation with people, but like it's a conversation with the land and the plants. And that's that's what's interesting is like I think I don't want to repeat too much of myself, but it's really when you start to really pay attention to what's around you and connect with it, there is a little bit of a an ego loss, or at okay. least there should be, and you want to you want to i'm not trying to tell anybody what to do. They, like you yeah i have found that i just naturally gain partnerships with the plants for, it's hard to describe but like you just each one ends up having their own personality which is crazy uh but you get to know them you get to know what they like you get to know like you can reach out and touch a plant and know whether or not you should harvest that part of it um and it becomes very intuitive um and it is really important because it's it's not about brewing <sighs> brewing is so much more than just brewing to me um it really is the brewing is like the way it's like the the excuse to do this right like i love beer i'm so passionate about it but like the act of brewing is just kind of like a means to an end. It's the community, it's the camaraderie, it's like the, the joy, the memories that come from beer, the memories created by brewing beer. Um, so like the brewing is the excuse that I have to go out and, and collect herbs and get to know people and hang out and, and just share this, you know, and, and be, and to make something with my hands and be proud of that. Um, so if you were to go out and just like, like I said, just decimate a plant population because it's like, oh, that's there. And like, I, I, I don't know, I, it belongs to me. So I'm just going to take it all. And th then you, you lose all that and you've lost kind of the magic of, of why we're doing this. I don't, yeah. That's a bit, <laughs> Have you found that visitors to, to the brewery who are drinking these beers and, um, who are then, uh, you know, eating the snacks along with it or eating the raw ingredients, um, uh, uh, along with it, um, that you've been able to build a better appreciation for locals of what's around them. Yeah. I think there's three things. So one thing that happened that was really funny was, uh, my dad had brought out some investors when we first opened and our beer garden doesn't have music except when we do live music. Um, but like we don't have speakers and and there's not like, there's not a lot going on. It's a, it's just like some picnic tables out in the trees. And when you, when people first go out there, they're like, Oh man, you know, you got to put this out here and you got to put pickleball courts and you got to have music and you got you to do all this stuff. And then like, it's like 15 to 20 minutes later you can visibly see they their shoulders just kind of like drop and they settle in and they just, and they look around and they just go oh i get it now and and it, you just like you can't help but be like calmed and relaxed by the place which is so cool um and 
that's like that's kind of the goal and i literally completely forgot the other two things i was going to say just now <laughs> what was but the you but you are making a connection to the land through the beers where people oh. are understanding it in a new way yes so the other things i was going to say was that there's two goals that i have with beerberg kind of with doing this and that's when i go and visit another place i do love to try what people are passionate about so if that's ipas i'd love to try your ipa but what i I really seek out is like, what can I get here that I can't get at home? And I want to get to know a place. Like I don't visit a place to go sit in a hotel or, or something and just like, you know, get drunk or something. I want to really understand like, what, what are you guys doing here? And like, what is this place? And what, what can I, you know, learn about it? And so I wanted people who visit to try beers with ingredients that they may not have tried before or that help them connect to the place, help them understand it, uh, get both like an emotional and physical understanding of like what Texas is and what it has to offer um, from a nature standpoint. And, um, and then also for me, like I was saying earlier, there's plants that I always thought like, okay, like mesquite trees. I was always like, oh, stupid mesquite trees. They have thorns and they're they're like invasive and they take over and nobody likes them and mesquites are stupid. And then I figured out in brewing that they have these beans that taste like this amazing, super sweet toffee flavor that is one of the coolest brewing ingredients I've come across. And then once I started gathering the beans, I ended up spending a lot of time around mesquite trees and now I find them like so beautiful and so cool. And um, I use the wood. I've like smoked grains with mesquite wood. I'm making tap handles and mugs out of mesquite. It's like this beautiful red color. And mugs. That's cool. Oh, yeah. Um, one of the the GM at Beerberg is a, he's, he's like an amateur woodworker. So he's like making us these wooden mugs for our mug club. And the mesquite wood is insanely dense. So it chews up his blades, but it's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, the wood is good for smoking. Um, kind of, it's really harsh, but you know, you know, yeah. good anyway. Um, I'm gonna find I'll find a way. And then um, you know, the leaves are really bitter, a little not tasting good for beer, but they're fun anyway. And then the uh the beans taste great. And so, like for me, I now look back at my whole life and I get very nostalgic about all my experiences around mesquite trees because I have this new appreciation and understanding for it. And when I sip a beer made with mesquite, it does bring me back to that. And so, yeah, this dual element of giving people this sense of home and comfort and connection to things and places that they've been in their whole life and then also people visiting, getting to know a place like that's I that's what I really enjoy about Beerberg. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, for the folks who are inclined to get on planes or uh, to 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 drive into to Hill Country, um, where can they find you online? What's uh, where's all of the various uh, social handles that they should be aware of? Yeah. Um, I think it's just beerbergbrewing.com and then Beerberg Brewing on Instagram. Um, I think that's that's pretty much it. I try to make some fun educational videos on Instagram every once in a while. Yeah. 
um, to talk about like, okay, this like, I, I know I didn't say, this is probably gonna frustrate people that I didn't say like how much I'd use of each ingredient. That's fine. Um, but I also wanna like open this up, like anybody who's interested, I, I always had such imposter syndrome that I never wanted to reach out. Like I still don't reach out to scratch because I'm like, I'm not worthy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like, please reach out and like, I will share every recipe every ingredient i have no problem giving out this knowledge because i've worked really hard to find it and i found it incredibly fun and if you want to do that journey on your own great but i'm here for you i got books i got resources let me know <laughs> that's awesome hey thanks for being on the show i really appreciate it yeah thank you john are you a brewer or a home brewer who's been foraging if so tell me what you found and what you've made you can email me. It's John Hall. That's J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L at allaboutbeer.com. Or you can tell me about it on Twitter at John underscore Hall. That's also how you can get in touch with questions, comments, and guest suggestions. A reminder, go visit allaboutbeer.com. There you can check out the podcast page, the merch page, and you can read great new content as well as the archives going back to 1979. Don't forget, follow All About Beer on social media at All About Beer. And if you're interested in supporting journalism in the beer space, you can email us at info at allaboutbeer.com or simply go to patreon.com slash allaboutbeer if you want to support us. Don't forget, All About Beer has a podcast channel now. You can search and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. Steal This Beer has new episodes every Monday, and the BYO Nano podcast comes out on the 15th of every month. As for this show, Mitch Weber does the music, Jeff Quinn designed our logo, and I'm John Hall. New episodes release every Wednesday, and that's when I'm going to be back again to drink beer and to think beer. <laughs>